following is a lecture by Rabbi David Kaplan. Rabbi Kaplan is originally from Chicago. He attended Northeastern University and received his rabbinical ordination in Jerusalem. He has lectured widely in Israel and America and is currently a senior lecturer at the main campus in Jerusalem. We were speaking last time uh, on, on the, uh, the prohibition of all sorts of, all sorts of uh, uh, immorality. Now, the Torah goes and elaborates. So I'm just going to go through them just to give you an example. And the truth of the matter is that when you wonder to yourself, you know, come on, who are they talking to? All you have to do is pick up any newspaper or magazine, right? And you see that everything that the Torah is discussing when it comes to all sorts of, excuse me, particularly incestuous relationships and all sorts of combinations of immorality, all you got to do is pick up any periodical nowadays, right? And you'll see that the Torah is talking to our generation. Because you see, all these all forms of perversion still take place nowadays, right? All forms of incestuous relationships still, still take place. So 189 is to not commit homosexuality with one's father, right? One, if you want it afterwards, I'll, I'll, I'll go through specifically. Uh, number 190 is not to be involved in sexual relations with one's mother. 191 is not to have a relationship with the father's mo- wife, right? Uh, the father's wife, the one's stepmother. Okay. 192 is to not be, have uh, sexual relations with one's sister. Now this involves, half, this, this includes a half-sister, right? It includes a half-sister or uh, any type of sister, a half-sister either from the mother's side or from the father's side. What is strange, what is strange is that according to halacha, it would be permissible to marry your stepsister. A person could marry their stepsister according to halacha, where you are not related to her blood relative in any way, shape, or form. You would not be allowed, uh, you would even be allowed to marry an adopted sister, right? Two siblings where one or both of them have been adopted, and they are not blood relatives of each other, the halacha is that they would be allowed to, uh, the halacha is they would be allowed to marry each other. The Chafetz Chaim, when the Chafetz Chaim got married, he was 16 years old. The Chafetz Chaim's mother was a widow, and she remarried a man who had a daughter. And when they wanted, the Chafetz Chaim was hot stuff, right? The Chafetz Chaim could have gotten a very good shirach. And there was some argument as to who he was going to marry, and in order that the mother and stepfather shouldn't, quarrel with each other, the Chafetz Chaim married his stepsister. The Chafetz Chaim married his simply as a means of, of maintaining harmony in the home. Right? That's why he was the Chafetz Chaim. And she was, already, she was already not so young. She was 18. Right? So, uh, you know, the Chafetz Chaim was willing to marry. He could have gotten, you know, in those days, the girls were getting married 13, 14 years old. They even say that in the times of the Chafetz Chaim, there was a guy who, there was a, who was 13 years old, and the word spread that he knew he was fluent in the entire Shas. Right? He was 13 years old, he was fluent in the entire Shas, and the Shabsons, the matchmakers, were all converging on his home, trying to get the suitable match. The way it used to work is the bigger the scholar, wealthy businessmen would very often go for a scholar as a son-in-law, and then they would support him so he could study, and eventually he would be able to say we were speaking about living in one's parents' home. They would take the married couple, and they would live with their parents for usually about five years, so the husband could study un- unencumbered, and then he would develop into a uh, halachic authority. He would become a rabbi of a town. That's how they developed. Very often, money speaks, right? And what determines the shit up very often. And why should you marry if all else is equal? You're going to try to marry somebody where you have support. 
the, uh, this guy was 13 years old, and the matchmakers were, 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 were coming in hot and heavy. Right? Everybody wanted this guy. 13 years old, fluent in the entire shots. The future's unbelievably rosy. Then they found out that there was a scam. He was not 13 years old. He was 15 years old and fluent in the entire shots. And everybody backed off. Because in those days, 15 years old and fluent in shots is no trick. Right? 13 and 13 with shots, that's already something. That's already something remarkable. 15, no big deal, right? So they, so they, they left them, they, they let him go. So that's what it says. You're allowed to marry, you're allowed to marry a stepsister. Um, you're not allowed to, very quickly, I'll give you the numbers later. You don't have to write down each one. Do not have a relationship with your son's daughter. Not have a relationship with your daughter's daughter. Do not have a relationship with your own daughter. Right, and remember all, again, all these things are all these things are in every day, every paper that you pick up, you'll find stuff like this nowadays. Um, to not have relations with with your step with, with the father's daughter from another wife, and the next one is the father's sister, and then there's the mother's sister, and there's the father's brother. Right, to have to have a homosexual relationship with the father's brother. Now, what's what's absolutely incredible about this? What's amazing here? Is that Anyom Kippur? Anyom Kippur. When we read the Torah at Mincha, Anyom Kippur, the section. This is all written from the. This is all written from the. This is all from the Torah portion of Acharimos in the book of Vayikra. In in the Anyom Kippur at Mincha Anyom Kippur, when we read a portion of the Torah, the portion of the Torah that we read. This is this is an hour or two before the judgment is sealed on Yom Kippur when we read a Torah portion, this is the portion of the Torah that we read we read, we read all about the prohibited relationships why? on Yom Kippur, at the height of the day the most intense moment, we're heading towards Ne'ilah, about the day's ending and we read about the prohibited relationships, why? what do you think? because those are things you definitely didn't do, it's easy in other words, I can't think about so you're, you're an optimist. Commentaries say it's because rooted deeply in man's heart is the subject of immorality. Sexual immorality is rooted so deeply, even on Yom Kippur, even on the Day of Judgment, these are the things that a person is still focused on, and therefore the Torah wants to, uh, we, we re-emphasize once again those prohibited relationships. Yeah. Is it true that those things happen Hashem gave them like a temptation, a really strong temptation for people to have no, no more than nowadays. No more than nowadays. And nowadays there are all sorts of, to the contrary, nowadays there are all sorts of arguments that it's okay. In the old days, everybody agreed that it wasn't okay. Nowadays you get the rationalization. No, no. Um, yeah. Are any of these things violating the characters in By any of the folks in the story? I haven't really tracked it not look, look. I mean, the entire existence of man is based on incestuous relationships. Uh, uh, Cain married his. Adam married. Uh, who did Adam marry? Right, he married himself, so to speak. Right. That's a, you know, if, if you want to get right down to it, he was split up. He was born as a, as a what do you call it, androgynous being. He was split, and then then then, then he then so to speak, he married his mate, which had actually come from part of him. The uh, uh, Cain married his sister. Hevel married his sister. Right, all the tribes that they were born with sisters to marry. Eventually, after the world was populated, then it became prohibited to be involved in any of the incestuous relationships. Okay. Um, now the um, number number two hundred. We're up to two hundred again. There's a whole bunch. There's a whole list of uh, uh, your, uh, the daughter-in-law. 
and the brother's wife. Now here is the one exception, and this is one of the one of those anomalies in the Torah. It is severely prohibited to marry your brother's wife. You know that. That means if a man's brother is married to somebody, it is prohibited, absolutely prohibited, to involve in a relationship with his sister-in-law. And even if his brother dies, his sister-in-law is still completely off limits. Except if his brother dies childless. If his brother and sister-in-law die childless, then not only is it permissible for him to marry his sister-in-law, at that point it becomes a mitzvah for him to marry his sister-in-law. Not a requirement. And, uh, it's a mitzvah, not a requirement, it's a mitzvah because there is an option. The option is what's called the chalitza ceremony. The chalitza ceremony, that means that when his brother dies and the brother is childless, the sister-in-law is automatically bonded to him. That means she is not allowed to marry somebody else. She's now a widow, correct? She's a widow, but she is not allowed to marry anybody else. <coughs> She's not allowed to marry anybody else unless something <coughs> is done to release her from this bond. Now, he has one of two choices. He can either live with her, and by doing that, he marries her. He lives with her, and by, by living with her, he actually marries her, and that completes the relationship. Or he has to turn her loose. That means let her marry anyone else other than himself. That is called the chalitza ceremony. The chalitza ceremony is where his shoe is removed, and she spits on the floor in front of his shoe. The very deep symbolism in it, what, what, what it's symbolizing, the fact that he doesn't want to perpetuate his brother's name, she spits on the floor in front of him, they go through the ceremony, and this is done in Beisdin, and once it's done in Beisdin, then she's free to marry anybody else. Now, one of these common problems in our day and age was where a woman who, let's say, uh, let's say, you, have, let's say you have a couple living in Russia, this is very common, a couple is living in Russia, and a, a, a husband dies, right? Or the other way around, you got a couple living in America, the husband dies childless, and the brother is living in Russia, and, and, and the Iron Curtain was still not down yet, so he can't get out of Russia. His sister-in-law, living in, in the United States, is now prohibited from marrying anybody else until he either comes along and marries her, or he performs the Khalifa ceremony. Nowadays, the marriage ceremony is not performed, by the way. Nowadays, we do not, the, brother, the brother-in-law does not marry his sister-in-law. Nowadays, because uh, the sages at a certain time, point felt that this ceremony cannot be done with the proper mitzvah motivation, right? that he may have other incentives. Therefore, it's not done, but the chalitza is absolutely a requirement, and if the chalitza is not done, then they're prohibited. And the... Uh, is the second option a... Uh, is it an option? Is it the of uh, the brother um, becoming the father of a child in this relationship, where they're not allowed? So just say, if, um, if, if uh, the, the, the husband dies and the... If she and the brother-in-law would agree to marry each other, if she and the brother... Bro- he's married already. Oh, if he's married already. Yeah. The brother is married already. Okay, so since there's a rabbinic decree against marrying two wives, he's got no option and he must release her. He must and release her with the chalitza ceremony. And it, can't, and it can't be done out of wedlock. It can't be done... Uh, no, no, no. It's got to be done with, it's got to be done with proper sanction. I mean, he does have an option. He could divorce his wife and then marry her. Right? Theoretically, that would be an option. It wouldn't be done, right? But theoretically, that would be an option. Yeah? If there's three brothers, which one, I mean, is the Good question. It goes to the oldest. <coughs> the oldest brother has to either pass or play. Right? Now, he, pass it? he can pass it on to the next brother, and he can pass it on to the next brother. Right? He says, I don't want, look, I don't want to marry her, but I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it for everybody else. Right? And he could give it the option to the next brother. He could do the same thing. If they've gone through all the brothers, 
And at that point, the youngest brother says, I don't want to have anything to do. Then the basin says to the oldest one. Then it comes back to the oldest one, and the court says to the oldest one, okay, it's to you. You've got to make the decision, either marry her or release her. Right? If the brother, now, you have a situation, according to, let's go back to Torah times, where such a thing was an act. Right? You should know, by the way, this is something that was found in all societies. All societies had some form of perpetuating the name of the deceased. Someone in the next of kin would marry the wife who was, who was left childless, right? And I think in certain societies they do that today, where a woman who's widowed and has no children, somebody in the family marries her in order to perpetuate the name. The, uh, um, uh, if, let's say you have a situation where the oldest brother is married to his wife. Now, the oldest brother is 25 and his wife is 24, and the oldest brother dies. Now, there's a 24-year-old woman who's childless, and he's got and his next brother is, let's say, nine years old. Right? Or his next brother is five years old. You have that situation, right? So there the court will tell the brother to do the chalitza ceremony, right? Uh, because, or if, let's say he's over the age of bar mitzvah, probably over bar mitzvah. So then, uh, let's say she's 35 and he's 14, right? Well, they're not that well suited. So the court would tell them that he should, he should release her. They would give him the advice to, to release her and not, uh, not go through with the, with the uh, yib, what's called yibum. The Yibum ceremony. Does the woman have to marry the brother? If she absolutely despises him, she could, you know, you know, if she really doesn't want to, not. But generally, the assumption is that people emotionally would want to perpetuate the name of the of the deceased, and that's the idea. The idea is some way of perpetuating his name. Okay, now. So, the, the children of the of the brother who married that widow be then named after. That's the way the Torah words it. That's the way the Torah words it. What, what the Torah means by that, there are different opinions of the Torah means. But generally, yes, he carries the name of the deceased brother. You know, he's not really his well, it's regarded according to, it's regarded that the neshama of the deceased has come back now in the, in, in, in the face. That's why you get all this stuff. There's a very big fuss made with naming, by the way. When a baby is born, you could avoid it's a tremendous, tremendous fights when a baby is born. And Kabbalistically, it says that a baby that's born and there's fighting over the name, the baby's life is in danger. This is Kabbalistically. So uh, what people do is they name. Now what happens is people say one, one Zeta's name is, is Chaim, and the other Zeta's name is Yitzchak, so they name the baby Chaim Yitzchak, right? And everybody's a happy compromise for everybody. But the, then they could fight about, well, why did you name him Chaim before Yitzchak? Why did you name Yitzchak Chaim? But they'll find something to fight about. The bottom line is that if you're really trying to do it right, you have not done anything. All you've done is you've created a new name called Chaim Yitzchak. Right. You have not got Chaim named after, and you've got Yitzhak anybody named after him. I heard one story about a man who, before he died, his last will with his children, do not name me after anybody if there's anybody ahead of me in line to be named. Right, because he didn't want any fighting. Right? He wanted his children, if there's any type of conflict, that he should not be named after him. Right, so that it should avoid, it should avoid fighting, yeah. So what happened if uh, she has to marry someone, and... Somehow they did perform the, what is it, Chalitza, and she married someone else and they did not do the proper uh, ceremony, you know, she, she, somehow, let's say... If she marries somebody with, without Chalitza, uh -huh. that rabbinically the children are Mamzerah, right? And she's prohibited from marrying, it's like she needs a divorce, she's bonded... Yes, that's what I say, if, if she has not gotten it, then it's a very big problem for her to try and go... For her to go and marry somebody else, a very big problem, very big problem in Allah. Mamzer, bastards, Allah and bastards. Right? That means a child born uh, with all the ramifications. He's not, allowed to, he's not allowed to marry into the Jewish people. He's got all the all the stigmas of all the stigmas of a bastard. Uh, Terry, a, a mamzer, 
A mamzer is a translation of the word bastard in Hebrew. Now, bastard does not mean a child born out of wedlock. It's not a child. A child born out of wedlock has got no halachic stigmas whatsoever. You should be aware of that. There's no halachic stigmas whatsoever. Not even that. If his father, if his father is married and his mother is single, let's say a father cheated on a man, cheated on his wife, and fathered a child with a single woman, that child has no stigmas in halacha whatsoever. He's a perfectly legitimate child. He's he just born out of wedlock. A mamzer is the result of either a married woman who's involved in a relationship or a, uh, a some type of incestuous relationship. I'll tell you in one second. We'll get there in a second. Thing. Incredibly tragic story it happened right here in Israel. It happened with I think I saw this in the paper within the last year or so in Israel. Um, the next one is the prohibition to marry a woman and her daughter. Right? You marry you marry a woman. You marry your mother. You marry your mother-in-law. So to speak, right? You marry a woman, you marry or you marry your daughter-in-law. Now, when is it prohibited? It's prohibited when you're married to one and then you marry the second one. So you're married to a woman, and then either she's still alive or after she dies, you marry her mother. Her mother. That's extremely prohibited according to halakha. Um, it's other categories. The next one that I want to get to is there's a, there's a granddaughter, a grandson, whatever. The next one is the prohibition to marry two sisters. Now, this is a this is a very interesting situation. You're not allowed to marry two sisters. This is number one two hundred and six. I'll fill in all the others. Don't worry. I'll fill in all the others. This is number two hundred and six. Is the prohibition to marry two sisters. Now, what the prohibition is is that while one of the sisters is alive, you're not allowed to marry the other one. A man marries a woman, and while he marries this woman, her sister is alive. Not, if she's alive, he's not allowed to marry her sister. If she dies. He is allowed to marry her sister. If he divorces her, he's not allowed to marry her sister unless she dies. Right? So if his divorce, he dies, then he may marry her sister. If his divorce, he's still alive. So that's the rule. You cannot marry two women while they're still alive. There are two, two tragic cases took place in Israel. Very interesting. Um, now, what's the idea behind it? The idea behind it is that the Torah does not want that two sisters who are naturally close with each other should then be in a situation where there's going to be a natural enmity between them. What is the enmity? Do you know that, that do you know what a woman is called? A man who's married to a woman and then he has a second wife. What is the, do you know what the, the word in the Torah is for those two wives? They're called sorrows. Have you heard the word sorrows? Sorrows. Sorrows, right? Trouble. Her, her, the Hebrew word for the co-wife is you're my brother-in-law, right? You're his brother. She is her sorrow. She is her, literally, her trouble, right? But the official word, the mother-in-law, right, this might, might be better for a mother-in-law, right? But the, the official word for a, for a co-wife is the tzara. She is the tzara. Now, there was a case here in Israel. A woman, a woman got on a, uh, a woman got on a bus, right? This was happened about probably five, six years ago, I imagine. A woman got on a bus. She got on a bus in Yerushalayim, in, 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 in one part of the country, and she was going to another part of the country. She got on a bus, a, a woman was 26 years old, and her three children, eight, somewhere between the ages of, of an infant and about three years old. She got on the bus with her three children, and there was a terrorist attack, and the bus was on fire. She was killed in the fire, and her three children were killed in the fire. A woman and her three children. Now, I think a soldier was also killed. He tried to save her. Instead of trying to get off the bus, apparently she just sat there with the children. She couldn't get out of the plane. She just stayed on the bus with her children. So she was killed on the bus. Now, they never found the body, right? And then what happened was they had a very big question because her family 
and this was done in Europe all the time, especially when, when before, uh, before we had the modern medical techniques, when there was a very high incidence of, uh, of death during childbirth. So women, very, let's say a woman's giving birth, and while she's giving birth, she dies. Now she's left the husband, she's obviously a woman in her childbearing years. So she's left the husband and a bunch of little children in the home. So who is most suitable to now raise those children? Her sister. Her sister is going to be the most suitable person. And very often that's what was done. A man would marry his wife's sister if the wife died prematurely. He would marry her sister. It's the next natural, the natural choice, especially if there are children involved. Now, what happened? This woman was killed on the bus, and she and her three children were killed. The family, a while later, the family decided they had another sister, and the family proposed that her sister should marry her, 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 her husband. Her husband was left, left alone. Her sister was single and her husband is now single. And it's perfectly okay according to Allah because the, the first wife has died. Right? So they proposed that the sister should marry her husband. What was the problem? The problem was they never found the body. Right? So you have no evidence of the death of the, of the woman. Right? And therefore, if she, maybe she was never on the bus. She told the husband she's going to be on the bus. And, and no, one, she, no one ever saw her get on, no one saw her get off. All we know is she said she was going to be on the bus, and she, she apparently the bus was attacked, she died, no one could account for her. So it seems like she was killed in the attack, but you have no way of knowing for sure. At that point, you have it in the reverse all the time, where a woman can't remarry because her husband has disappeared. That's called Naguna. A woman can't marry. Her husband, he says, I'm going off on a trip. They had a tragic case like this in Israel in 1967. There was a submarine called the Dakar. And the Dakar lost contact. Where are they coming from? They're coming from England, weren't they? I think they're coming from England. They lost contact with the submarine. I think there were 57 men on board. They never heard or saw or heard from them again. All of their wives cannot remarry because we don't know what has happened to the husbands. It's an Aguna. Here you had a unique case where it's the reverse, where the man cannot marry a specific woman. A woman can't marry anybody because her husband. Here the man can't marry a specific woman because his first wife might be alive. So they went to Rabbi El Yoshib. Rabbi Yashif lives right here in Yerushalayim, and Rabbi Yashif said that they, should, that they, they, had, a, they had the dental charts, right? And they, based on the dental charts, that's how they originally determined that she was dead. They did find teeth, right? So they, based on the dental charts, they determined that she had died, right? And they had to ask if those dental charts are good enough to allow the husband to marry her sister. Rabbi Yashif said yes, right? Based on, the, based on the evidence, Rabbi Yashif said yes, right? So that was case number one. The other case was an incredible tragedy. Yet a man was married to a woman. And this man and woman had ten children. Now, her mother came forward. What happened, the way the story broke, I don't remember, I think one of the brothers, one of the kids went to the authorities. If a man is married to a woman, they have ten children. Somebody came forward and said that this man had been married to his wife's sister for a couple of months and then divorced her. Right? Now, if that would be true, that he was married to her sister and then he divorced her and then he marries the second woman and has ten children from her, every one of those ten children is a mamzer. Right? The ramifications of this are that he would have to divorce his wife and any of his children that are married have to divorce their siblings because a mamzer is not allowed to marry into the into Imams and Allah's married Jewish person, and that would are the ramifications. So here are the case. You've got the man married to the woman and their ten children, and they're hanging in the balance. There's now a rumor that this man was married to his wife's sister for a short period of time. 
her, his wife's mother, in other words, the grandmother in the case, came forward and she said, yes, he was married to my other daughter, but my other daughter was adopted, right? Which takes care of everything, right? Because it was married to her and he divorced her. There was no relationship between them whatsoever. Six months later, she came to the chief rabbinate in one of the cities here, and she said, what I testified earlier was under duress. My son-in-law threatened he'd kill me if I came forward. They were both natural daughters. They are both natural daughters. What had happened was that he was from Iraq or Iran, I don't know where it was. He was married to the first sister for about three months when he was in his teens. They got divorced after three months. He came to Israel. 13 years later, 12, 13 years later, he married her older sister. And then they get together, had 10 children. Every one of them was ruled a halakhically a mamzer. They had to divorce their spouses. He had to divorce his life. And you've got a massive tragedy. But I understand why the kids are mamzers. You see, the, the kids are mamzers if they're born from an adulterous relationship or from an incestuous relationship. Pro- an incestuous or prohibited relationship. Certain prohibited relationships. You see, you have certain situations where a man can't marry his wife's sister. Right? They're the children. Let's say a Kohen marries a divorcee. Now, if a Kohen marries a divorcee, that's also a prohibited relationship, but the children are not Mamzerah. They have a different stigma, but they're not Mamzerah. But here you have a situation where every one of those central children is a terrible tragedy. I remember I saw a picture in the paper. They had obviously, they had blacked out the, 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 you know, blacked out the faces. But they had a picture among these ten children. Some of them were from, some of them were not from, right? Some were, but every one of them was now considered halakhically a Mamzerah. And so that, that's what, those are the, 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 the situations you could run into when it comes to uh, uh, the yichus, the, 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 the qualifications of who can marry who. Of course, of course. It, it, it not only happens, it, it not only it, 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 it happens. If we want track in time, so there are different quests, there are different opinions among the halakhic authorities about how far back do you have to trace, right? Do you have to trace? Do you know the Talmud says, the Talmud says that when a man got married, he would have to trace back his wife's, I mean, it worked on both sides, but he'd have to trace back her lineage several generations, they have to check his lineage several generations to find out who's suitable to marry who, maybe there's something hidden along the way. It was interesting, Gamora says, somebody who was a, a communal charity uh, collector, that you don't have to check his lineage. Someone who was involved in communal, there are various people, a Kohen who served in a temple, you don't have to try and check his lineage, and somebody who was a communal charity collector, you don't have to check his lineage. Why? Because somebody, a Kohen who served in the temple, obviously there was a lineage check done on him before he ever got into the temple. What about a communal charity collector? So the Gemara says, a communal charity collector there are so many people upset with him for constantly asking for charity. Right? This is the guy who comes around house to house, door to door, asking for charity. So many people are upset with him. They've probably called him every name in the book, right? <laughs> including all sorts of stories about his lineage. So if no one, if we, if he was a communal charity collector, and we haven't heard anything negative about him up until this point, you can be sure there's no dirt. Because if there was, somebody would have dug it up and would have exposed it already. That's the end of the Gemara. It's kind of joke. That's what the Gemara says. Such a person is, such a person is, is, is not, he's beyond reproach, and you don't have to do any checking over there. Number 208. Okay, 207, we already discussed the, uh, the idea of not being involved with a woman who is, who is a nita. And now we're off completely off the subject. We're on a completely different subject. The, uh, uh, this is the prohibition, a specific prohibition besides idol worship, which is prohibited in the Torah, a fascinating mitzvah. This is the prohibition for a man 
to hand, not just a man, a woman also, but it, says, uh, it is prohibited to give over your children to the idol worship called Molech. There's a certain idol, idol worship, a form of idol worship, and it was called Molech. Now, the concept is as follows. There are different opinions. There's a basic fundamental machlokas. How was this idol worship? According to some, they took, there were two large pillars of fire, and there were these priests that, that, that were the priests for this Molech idol, and they would take the child, give the child to the priest, the priest would walk with the child between the two pillars of fire, and then he would give the child back to the parents. That was the whole thing, right? Whatever else it involved, right? That was the Molech. That's according to some. According to others, it was not like that. According to others, Molech was actually where they took the child and they burned the child to death. Now, the, the Medrash says, I hate to use, I hate to draw on this as an example. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments on TV? Right? Okay, so you're all tainted just like I am, right? There, there, there's one scene over there where Pharaoh's son dies, right? In the movie, Pharaoh's son dies, and the Pharaoh, out of desperation, there's some idol with the hands stretched out, and they put the son on this idol. According to the commentaries, the way Molech worked is there was an idol deep inside, in, in, inside the room. It was a hollow metal type of idol with a fire inside. They would take the child and they would put the child, when this thing is red hot, they would put the child on the idol itself, and in order to stop, the, to drown out the screams of the child, the idol-worshipping priest would beat the drums over at the entrance to, to drown out the screams so the father shouldn't change his mind. What was the idea of such a thing? And the truth is that this explains kind of human sacrifice in general, right? What, what was the idea of human sacrifice? What was the idea? Why would anybody be so stupid? is to actually have one of their children give up, kill a child, right, or, or, or commit idol worship. Somebody just told me recently, uh, who was it, the, the Aztecs? When, uh, who was it who got to the Aztecs first? Uh, which, what, what was the name of the, the, the Spanish guy? Who, was it Magellan? No, no, no. Cortez. Cortez. So Cortez, when he got there, apparently they they saw him riding on the horse. Rabbi Rubin told me this. They saw him riding in on the horse. There were no horses in, 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 on the American continent at that point, north or south. And they saw him riding in. They landed the ship with horses. They saw him riding on the horse. They saw it, They thought he was some type of deity. They thought that the man on the horse was all one, was all one deity. So apparently the Aztecs came up to him to worship him. They had their prisoners with them, and they immediately cut out one of the prisoners' hearts to serve it to him. Right, you know, apparently you were supposed to eat the heart after it was cut out for you, and apparently the, the, the Spanish who were watching it just lost it right on the spot, right? They, they, you know, but that was they were very they were steeped in human. What's the idea? What's the idea of, of, of human sacrifice? So the commentators explained the belief in the pagan world was that if you'd be willing to over underta- under, undertake or undergo one tragedy, one misfortune then the gods would have mercy on you and not bring any more misfortune on you, right? So the promise from the priests to the people was, you sacrifice your child, and the gods will be so pleased with you that never again will there be any more children of yours that the gods have to take, right? The Torah specifically enumerates this as, as a, 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 um, 